0: Somewhere it's going to come out and it's going to need to be coped with. And often, what I see for nurses, physicians, other providers who don't find a way that is healthy to work through those feelings is increases in addiction behavior, burnout from their job, leaving the profession, suicidality. And those are the things we don't want to see.
1: What is trauma informed care? And how do we build the muscles of resilience in both healthcare professionals and patients? Let's talk all about it with psychologist, trainer, consultant, and podcaster, Dr. Amy King, right here on episode 414 of the Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the big picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, medicine, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And remember that you can get CEUs from listening to podcasts over at renegade.pro. That's R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro. They're building a library of nursing podcasts where you can earn credit for listening because you're doing so anyway, so you might as well. So go to rnegade.pro, log into the portal, select me or any other content creator from the dropdown and get CEs for any of my content that's up on the platform. And if you'd like to help other people find the show, consider leaving a rating review on Apple Podcasts, Google, Amazon, Spotify, and just listen and share from any app where you happen to be getting the podcast. And if you want me to become a patron, head over to patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith and any of the above would be super greatly appreciated. So thank you for being here and thanks for supporting the show. You can find the show notes at nursekeith.com or of course, just in the show notes from any podcast app where you happen to be tuning in. And like I said, we're here with Dr. Amy King and we're talking about trauma-informed care and we're talking about resilience and training healthcare professionals, patients, families, and children, how to develop that resilience muscle. And Amy, I wanted to start with this question of what is trauma-informed care? Because a lot of us hear the term, but we might not necessarily know what it means.
0: Absolutely. So being trauma-informed in medicine has been a passion of mine, Keith, for Decades now, Um, you know, originally I started out as a psychologist in private practice doing trauma informed work or trauma work with individual patients and what I realized is that the providers who often see patients before me and have access to patients if they don't understand what trauma looks like how it presents then it's it's hard to encourage them to look for seek outpatient mental health services or to just even respond in the exam room and so i went on a mission to really make sure that all healthcare providers understand what it means to be a trauma informed practice and there are lots of stages of being trauma-informed, everything from being aware, right? First of all, recognizing that trauma is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Every single patient that you encounter has experienced trauma, stress, and adversity in some capacity. The second part of it is being aware of what it looks like, how it presents, how it might show up in one patient that's different than another, or even in yourself or in colleagues that you work with. And then we obviously want to actively resist re-traumatizing people. And that can happen in any capacity in healthcare, not just from the provider. It could happen from the system. It could happen from your front office folks. It could happen from a billing and coding team, right? So it's important to me that we just first... Acknowledge that trauma is everywhere. Second, recognize how it looks, how it presents, and then resist re-traumatizing individuals. Once we're more aware of what it looks like, and so that whole continuum, Keith, of being trauma aware to being trauma sensitive and trauma informed, really takes time and education and practice.
1: Mm-hmm. And you're a licensed psychologist, and you've worked a lot with children and families. Mm-hmm. So is is that where you're Well, is that where you cut your teeth in terms of learning about trauma and the effects of trauma and how to do what you just said, which is not re-traumatize the patient and recognize that trauma informs their actions, their way of life, the choices they make?
0: Mm -hmm. I love this question. Um, You know, kind of where did I get my experience from? I think we all have lived experience as well that informs the research that we do, the careers that we go into, I'm sure all of the nurse listeners that you have, there's a reason that they went into nursing, right? There's a reason they became helpers. And often before we're even working with patients, we have our own experiences. And so um, I grew up with my own adversities and became very interested in how trauma and stress present in folks. I did a lot of research. That's what my dissertation was on. But yes, ultimately, my residency was around kids and families that had experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, acute stress disorders, a lot of intergenerational traumas. And I did that in a variety of settings, in community mental health, in youth corrections, in home visiting programs, and in evaluation and assessment then, later, I went on and applied those skills to the kids and families as well as adults that I worked with and interacted with
1: mm-hmm. And in the course of your work, what are some of the core things that you've learned along the way? I mean, you've you've pointed out already that trauma happens to everyone, right? And that everybody brings trauma to the table, including providers, right? We're not immune, and we're we're people too. <laughs> um, so, what are some of your, like, how would I say it? Like your core beliefs about trauma that you haven't Mm -hmm. shared yet.
0: Oh my gosh. There's so many, Mm -hmm. um, probably the first one and the primary one for me in terms of a core assumption is that people do well, if they can, I really think that nobody goes about this world, um, hurting others, projecting their, um, difficult experiences onto others with a desire to hurt other people, often people are in such pain, either from individual traumas, systemic oppressions, intergenerational trauma, that it's it's like it bleeds into every part of their life. Hmm. And so my first core assumption is that I really think that people do well when they can. And when they can't, it's probably because of lack of knowledge or information or resources or support. Um the other thing that is a core assumption to everything that I do in trauma informed work and building resilience is the fact that people in order to heal have to experience unconditional love they have mm-hmm. to know that no matter what mistakes they make no matter if they fail no matter if they've been hurt or hurt others they can heal and that they're inherently loved and that they have worth and value just because they're human beings. Hmm. Um, Which leads to maybe a third core assumption for me, Keith. And that is um, we have to bring our humanity into the work that we do as healthcare providers. If we don't, if we try to separate and compartmentalize too much, I think we lose ourselves.
1: And what's the impact on patient care when we do begin to lose ourselves, what, what are some of the outcomes that you've seen?
0: Sure. I mean, the big, biggest one that we've seen recently, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, is burnout. Uh right? if You feel like you can't be your whole self, bring your whole self. Essentially, you get into a state of overwhelm. And so folks really want to be able to practice with their whole selves, but sometimes either because of their own experience or the system that they're working for, they don't feel like they can, they feel like they have to be compartmentalized. There's so much of medicine that's kind of taught us and trained us to be the professional Always have the answers. Never let them see you sweat. Mm-hmm. But in actuality, that's a very kind of Euro dominant viewpoint of healthcare. When we look at other cultures that are more feminist in nature, more collectivist in nature, we see actually self in other, in community, in storytelling. And when we can start to bring those parts of ourselves into the work that we do, we have less burnout. We have less kind of depersonalization, feeling like I have to separate myself from my work. Um, And ultimately, it helps us feel like we have more purpose in the work that we're doing.
1: Mm -hmm. And where does moral distress come in? We heard a lot about moral distress in the literature Mm -hmm. and somewhat in the popular media during the height of the pandemic, you know, when let's say a patient was dying in the hospital and the family wasn't allowed to visit and the nurse had to hold up an ipad and mm-hmm. witness the family saying goodbye over the ipad you know and um you know my dad died in the hospital during the first year of the pandemic and no one oh, could go see sorry. him thanks he didn't die of covid but it was other causes but still he was in the hospital and no one could go see him so what about moral distress that comes about from those or other types of situations that healthcare providers find themselves in? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, the first thing is you, you just named it and described it beautifully, right? It's this feeling of, I wish, or I think I should provide a different type of care. And because of either you know, policy or the current environment, such as COVID restriction, I can't, I can't Mm -hmm. provide the type of care that I know would be best for this patient. I've been trained to help and heal people. And I can't bridge that gap between what I know they need and where we're at. That creates moral distress. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a beautiful quote, Keith, Um, I won't get it exactly right. It's by Julie Sheether. And she says something like, you know, as long as there have been helpers and healers, We've dealt with grief and loss, right, from the time of early medicine. But what creates moral distress is when we know what we need to do to help and heal, and there are either individual or policy or systemic barriers that prevent us from doing so. You know, the part of that that is really important to me is allowing folks to be able to process the feelings that occur in that gap, Mm -hmm. And I don't think we do that. I don't Mm -hmm. think we give space to healthcare providers to do that. I think we force them to kind of move on, go to the next patient, fight the bigger fight, um, you know, kind of, like I said, compartmentalize it or close it up and move on to the next thing versus just taking a moment and acknowledging your humanity the pain that you just experienced emotionally, the, the grief you may have for the patient in, in the example that you gave that had passed away with very few or no family members around. There's, there's actually no research that would support that if we allow nurses, for instance, to have a moment to experience that, that they're gonna get stuck there. Uh-huh. In actuality, if we give them a moment to express that, debrief it, talk to someone, have someone to speak to later a mentor or a colleague they actually do better they actually yeah. have less yeah. overwhelm less burnout
1: i believe that yeah and and you know i've i've spoken with er nurses and trauma nurses to talk about the word trauma right um, who you know they're they're in the midst of a code and the patient dies and there's blood and and gauze and tubes and you know there's stuff everywhere, right? The room is an absolute disaster after a, after an intense code, right? And then the patient dies. The doctor pronounces the patient dead. Everybody strips off their gloves, washes their hands, and are like, "Okay, who's next?" Right? And they're like, "Just move on." And that can be hard for certain people who just can't. They just can't make that leap, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had a friend who. Um, used to work in the ER. And she said that she was seen as kind of the weird one, because when a patient died in a circumstance like that, she would stay. And she Mm -hmm. said she would pray over the patient for 30 seconds or 60 seconds and Mm -hmm. just take a moment. And everyone thought that was really weird, you know, but she was like, I wasn't about to like, wash my hands, like literally wash my hands of the patient and move on to the next case. She said, I needed at least a couple seconds. Um, you know, of course, if it's a, a multi-victim, you know, event and you have, you know, 30 victims on gurneys, and of course you're going to move, ac- move along much faster. But in many circumstances, people need a moment or
0: mm-hmm.
1: they would like to have a moment but we're often not given those moments and and I know that you you're a consultant and an educator and you work with providers and um you provide various types of supports to healthcare providers who need to talk about it they need to process it and they need to say yeah this is what happened to me and this is why i am who i am today so mm-hmm. are we giving our providers short shrift when in this particular culture how it's manifested we don't mm-hmm. give them any time to process
0: yeah i mean i want to go back to something you said a minute ago mm-hmm. you know this person who takes a moment or needs a moment to process this extreme loss and this trauma that they just witnessed right that you you said that some people need more time i would argue keith all people need more time hmm. it's it's not normal for any of our nervous systems to go th- through something like that and then have to just kind of move on
1: mm-hmm.
0: what happens and and This is maybe another core belief is that just because you've been removed from the trauma doesn't mean the trauma is over. It's still in your body. Mm -hmm. I would argue that every single person that walks out of that room, either because there's another trauma to attend to or because it's just business as usual, that trauma Mm -hmm. is sitting in their nervous system waiting to be processed. And if it's not processed, what happens is it builds up over time. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere it's going to come out and it's going to need to be coped with. And often what I see for nurses, physicians, other providers who don't find a way that is healthy to work through those feelings is increases in addiction behavior, mm-hmm. uh, burnout from their job, mm-hmm. leaving the profession, mm-hmm. suicidality. yes. And those are the things we don't want to see. So to answer your question, 100%, we are are not allowing enough time or the space to process the trauma that's happening.
1: Mm -hmm. Exactly. And when we come back from the break, I want to talk about providers more and what you actually have created for providers to experience and to have that ability to offload and process what's going on for them. And I also want to talk about your podcast. And I want to talk about kids and families and pediatric stress and pediatric resilience and what you've seen in the course of your career. Does that sound like a good plan? Sounds great. Okay. So when we come back with the second half of episode 414, we'll be back with Dr. Amy King. So stay with us and we will return. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Amy King. And Amy, before the break, we were talking about providers and stress and you know what we walk away with and what's clinging to us, I guess, or clinging inside of us or lodged inside of us after an event. You know, I was talking to someone the other day who's a nurse practitioner, but as a nurse, she worked in an ER in Connecticut and after the sandy hook school shooting which was a number of years ago um she said that some of those victims were brought to her hospital to her ed and you know two children arrived doa you know at the emergency room and then someone else arrived and went straight to the or so i mean in this particular culture right now in the united states I mean there were three mass shootings that I'm aware of that happened this past weekend um just a few days ago mm-hmm. and you and I both know what's been going on here for years mm-hmm. and years so you don't have to work in the ED to be to to be affected by these things and there's the war in Ukraine there was the mm-hmm. pandemic I mean mm-hmm. there was the earthquake in Turkey recently where 30,000 people plus died so As providers, we're impacted by everything. I mean, we read the news, right? And um, we go home and, you know, talk to our families and our children and our neighbors, right? So what's your view, not just of the trauma that we as providers experience on the job, which is considerable, but the effects of the trauma, you know, out there, in the Mm -hmm. big, big, big world beyond the walls of the ED or the operating room? What do you see happening in our culture?
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, even as you were saying that, and I'm sure for the listeners, right? Didn't your heart feel heavy?
1: Yeah, of course.
0: Right. So there's a name for this. And I feel like when we, when we name something, it helps us understand something and it's called compounding stressors, Hmm. right? So we're in the middle of a pan- of a global pandemic and there's stuff that's happening at hospitals, you know, staff shortages and vaccine hesitancies and medical miss, and then all the things you mentioned, right? Mm-hmm. Global and political stuff that's happening around our country, around our world. Our bodies, like I was mentioning before, take on those stressors as compounding stressors, right? So it's not just one thing that's happening. It's all these things that are happening. Mm. And so- If we don't begin to acknowledge that that's what's happening in our bodies, right, we can become to really begin to depersonalize from our lives, which can be really dangerous for us. Mm -hmm. I, I think that not just medical providers, but all people need a space in community to talk about these experiences, to be human, to say, man, Keith, even hearing you say that, it made my heart heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I'm not watching the news right now, or mm-hmm. this is why I'm making sure that I, you know, have dinner with friends at least once a week, or whatever the case may be. But I think we have to first have a space where we can say this is hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so that that pervasiveness of trauma happening to you know the human family, basically, right. Um, It's, we have the microcosm in our little emergency room or a big emergency room. And then we have the larger macrocosm of the country and then the world and plenty of things to worry about and be impacted by. And in terms of doctors and other providers, you have something called the provider's lounge. Mm -hmm. And what are you doing in the provider's lounge? What is it? And what happens there?
0: Yeah. So, well, first of all, what it is, is a learning collaborative for healthcare providers. And I have monthly meetings that are um, created by Affinity. So I have a group for physicians. I have a group for behavioral health consultants. I have a group for dentists and optometrists. I don't yet, Keith, have a group for nurses and I want one. So I I would love to have a group of nurses say, hey, I, I want to be part of this. But essentially, what it is is um, a monthly meeting space where we're in community. We get continuing medical education. I provide a little bit of didactic upfront about some type of trauma informed education or resilience building activity. So, for instance, this year so far, we've talked about um, creating boundaries at work, which are critically important. Mm-hmm we've talked about what positive childhood experiences are and how that's important to talk about our patients, whether they're kids or adults. And this month in or next month in March, we're going to be talking about the art of listening. Hmm. And so we have a little didactic and then I teach all of the people who are in the groups um, what I call a resilience building tool or intervention. And then the last 15 to 20 minutes is open consultation collaboration resource sharing and man i got to tell you that's where the magic happens you know that's where you know folks tell me they they hold questions until we have this meeting so that they can be with their colleagues and have resources and support from me to ask questions in whatever capacity it could be anything from Issues around trauma with a patient to their own burnout, to just, you know, uh, questions about developmentally appropriate um, child development, for instance, or how trauma is presenting in their organization, or just needing some help creating a script around boundaries, for instance, with a patient or with their clinic or the hospital. So, yeah, it's a learning collaborative, it's a community. Um, It's been really an honor to walk. This path with many medical providers.
1: Hmm. And I understand that. You know, the portal you have for them, you have notes from the meeting, you have recordings if people can't make it, you have resilience intervention videos, you know, you have educational materials and, um, yeah, I mean, nurses could really use this, but obviously you need nurses who are willing to, to participate in order to make it workable for you. And I hope, I hope we could make that happen. So if people are interested, they can get in touch with you, obviously.
0: Yeah, you bet. Yeah. Yeah,
1: That's really important. I know you do um, breath work with them on, I think once a week on Wednesdays you offer Mm -hmm. breath work. Yeah.
0: Yeah. People can come to as many meetings as they want to a month. Mm -hmm. And one of them is breath work. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a a yoga slash dance teacher who does breath work. Her name's Nicole Smith LeVay and she's just lovely.
1: Mm -hmm. And you offer retreats as well. Are those for doctors specifically?
0: No, not necessarily. Usually I I have retreats once a year. It just kind of depends on the demand and what folks are needing. Um, My general retreat is around trauma-informed care and building resilience, and that's open to all all providers. Mm -hmm. Um, This year, we're focusing on what's called Cards for Connection. Which is specifically my resilience building tools. And so the people who would get the most of it are direct providers who are working with kids and families. And so it could be a nurse practitioner or um, a PA or a physician or a behavioral health care provider who does direct work with kids and families or even um, obstetric patients, because we do a lot of work in preventative care too for new moms.
1: Mm, okay. So Speaking of kids and families and pediatric stress and resilience, what are some of your experiences and some of your insights about that particular work? Because I know that's very dear to your heart and it's something that you've done a lot of work around for quite some time.
0: Yeah, so... I don't know. I think you get to a certain place in your career, Keith, right? Like you do your podcast and I have mine and you want to just have a greater systemic impact on the world. And I had done a ton of one-on-one work with kids and families, and I really wanted to have a broader impact. And there is no group other than healthcare providers, especially pediatric healthcare providers that see kids first thing in their life, especially if we're talking about obstetrics and pediatrics, and see them so frequently in the first couple of years of their life before they have interaction with any other systems, uh, behavioral health providers, education worlds. And so I really wanted to begin training pediatric specialists, people who work with kids and families around what trauma is and how we build resilience. And Mm. it's been an incredible journey and really transformational for the providers with whom I work.
1: And when you're building resilience, whether it's with children or parents or with providers, what is it you're looking for to give you a sense that that resilience muscle is actually strengthening? Like, what do you, Mm -hmm. are there signs and signals that things are changing for that particular person or family system?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love these questions, Keith. Mm. The first thing I do to look at resilience is I look at, okay, well, what's developmentally appropriate for a kid? Where should they be? Mm -hmm. What are the factors that build resilience for them? So for instance, in those first three years, right, we know attachment and attunement and neurological development are really important. And so then we go, okay, well, if that's going to go awry, how do we help a parent get that back on track, right? What are some specific interventions that could be taught in a pediatric setting in like two minutes, three minutes that would help that child and caregiver really have the skills, the resilient skills to mitigate stress and harm. So we might do things like encouraging um, special time between the caregiver and the child, which is like very intentional play that you do with a baby or little or older kids too. Or we might train a parent on how to be better attuned to their baby. So essentially what we're looking for are, can we increase connection Mm -hmm. between the caregiver and the child? Because if we can increase connection and enhance attachment. Attachment is the number one predictor for health outcomes. Hmm.
1: And does this happen? Are you looking at this? I'm just thinking from a provider's point of view, mm-hmm. um, observing a family or a mother and child or father and child. Are you looking for objectively seeing that the attachment's happening, or are you looking for subjective? input from the parent or from the child that yes, things are improving, or is it kind of a mixture of both?
0: Well, let me answer this two ways. First of all, it's preventative in nature. So Uh I want every kid, every caregiver that walks into a pediatric or family practice clinic or internist clinic who's working with kids and families to be teaching these skills, Uh because we know preventatively, it can have long-term health effects, right? So I don't want us to have to first identify that something's wrong and then provide this. I want us to do it for every kid, every family, because we know it's just good for resilience building. But here's the other thing. There's research that's come out that shows that if, and the specific research focuses on moms, but if moms specifically endorse that they experience childhood adversity, with every additional indicator of adversity mom experience, the likelihood that that child will fail developmental outcomes increases significantly. Hmm. And so we want to watch for, are we getting that kiddo back on track developmentally? And it really comes through a connected attachment with their primary caregiver.
1: Hmm. So you said adverse childhood events. So that goes back to the ACEs study, right? That's right that's mm-hmm. a long term study of the impact of adverse childhood events right on development right. yeah right and from what i've read and and gleaned over the years is that there's very few people who haven't had an adverse childhood event right that's
0: 100% correct in fact yeah. Um, The National Child Traumatic Stress Network actually expanded the definition from the original 10 ACEs. But Mm. we know from a study that was, you know, 25 years old at this point Mm -hmm. on a mostly white, mostly insured population that at least 12, at least 64 percent of every person had at least one childhood adversity. But when we look at specific populations like people of color, children in foster care, LGBTQ plus youth, we know that that adversity increases significantly. Mm -hmm.
1: And when we're aware that an individual or family come from a background or an experience like maybe they're refugees from Syria or Mm -hmm. they experienced you know a natural disaster or they are recovering from you know being at a school when there was a school shooting which is not an uncommon occurrence in this country obviously Mm -hmm. then we need to approach them with TLC and that's where trauma-informed care comes in right that's where the rubber hits the road that's right yeah
0: and and if every provider already knows what we talked about in the first half of the show, right, mm-hmm. what trauma is, mm-hmm. how it presents, how to resist re-traumatizing folks, mm-hmm. then when they know that someone's coming in with an acute stressor like that, they'll know how to respond with compassion, how to help that family build resilience and kind of restore sense of safety. Mm-hmm. Um, additionally, if they come in, so some of the incidents that you mentioned, Keith, are what we would call acute trauma or single event traumas. Mm-hmm. could be more complex trauma, like a Syrian refugee, as you mentioned, who's experienced trauma over the course of a period of time with little access to resources and support that goes from a single event to more complex trauma. Mm -hmm. And really, we should assume as healthcare providers that many people have experienced complex trauma.
1: Right. And that's where trauma-informed medicine should be part of medical education and nursing education. I don't really think it is from what I understand, but it sounds like it should be core to, or at least covered in medical and nursing education. And I'm sure in, you know, in psychology and, and those types of degree programs, it's probably central to your education, right?
0: That's right. In fact, when the Kaiser study came out, the Mm -hmm. the ACES study that you were talking about, Mm -hmm. um, it's a study I had read and most psychologists are already familiar with, right? We Mm -hmm. read it in graduate school, but it didn't enter mainstream medical education until Nadine Burke Harris had this famous, infamous now TED Talk that she did that really introduced it into the medical community and then... Mm -hmm. Since then, it really has become uh, much more prevalent. And you'll see a lot of organizations doing trauma-informed care and trauma-informed work um, Mm -hmm. and trying to create a little bit more um, reliability and validity on how the trainings look. But I would say, Keith, we're still sorely undereducated in the healthcare field around what trauma-informed care is.
1: Yeah, and I do question if it's really addressed in nursing education. Because in in nursing academia, we teach to the test, like the NCLEX, which is the licensing exam for nurses. Um, So schools tend to focus on what's on the NCLEX. So I don't know if it's been written into the question banks or not. That's something I'd actually like to find out if trauma-informed care has made its way into that particular part of the nursing education world, because if it does end up on the test, then it ends up in the classroom. So I feel like that's one of the places we need to look. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, now, over at, um, are you familiar with the Distrust and Disparities podcast? I'm not. It's new to the Health Podcast Network. Um, You're actually on the Health Podcast Network yourself and my friends, Camille and Jasmine over at Distrust and Disparities, they're two black women. Um, One is a social worker, one's a nurse, and they are talking about the medical injustices that have been visited upon the black communities since time immemorial in the United Mm -hmm. States and the distrust that has grown from those disparities. And we're talking about like Tuskegee and right. Henrietta Lacks and, you know, all these other, you know, insults and injuries that have happened, you know, from a, you could say from a racial perspective. And so they're covering, you know, it's sort of like, this is um, trauma on an entire people right? Mm-hmm. Um, from right. the days of slavery forward. So there's plenty of ways in which we can peel this particular onion. And I know you're peeling it on your podcast and your podcast is called The Most Important Medicine. What led you to start it? I know it's relatively new. It's on the Health Podcast Network, and um, which I think is great. Tell us a little bit about the podcast, what we can expect from it and why you feel it's so important to talk about.
0: Oh, thanks for asking, Keith. Um, Well, you're going to be on the podcast here in a few weeks. I'm going to interview you, which will be fun. Um, Really, as I mentioned before, my passion is that every single person who interacts with patients understands what trauma is and not only what it is, but what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted a free, accessible resource for healthcare providers. And a podcast is a great way to do that. And so um, actually a, a pediatrician physician who came to a retreat of mine said, Amy, this work that you're doing, how you're training us is the most important medicine that we could be practicing. Hmm. And so I took that and made it the title of the podcast. I really think understanding trauma, being our full human selves, um, being in a space of of building resilience for ourselves and our patients is the most important part of practicing medicine. So Mm -hmm. on there, I interview physicians, nurses, Um, other ancillary health care providers like physical therapists and occupational therapists and dentists, and then folks that intersect with those worlds. Um, So for instance, we talk about health equity. um, We talk about uh, health for marginalized populations, as you were talking about. Um, We discuss breath work. Um, I just had a podcast recently where I talked to the 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 previous undersecretary for the Veterans Administration and Mm. how he led our entire country through COVID. Mm. So any intersection of healthcare and trauma-informed care is really what the podcast is about so that as many people as possible can understand a little bit more about how this looks in medicine.
1: Yeah, it's a great show. I'm so glad it's on the Health Podcast Network, and I'm honored to to be a guest there and have you on my show. So people can find that, obviously, at the Health Podcast Network, and they can find it, I'm sure, on any podcast app that we could possibly think of. Absolutely. Yeah. And then your main... Portal for people to find you is dramiellc.com, right? And that's where they can find your LinkedIn and Twitter and all those other things, right?
0: All the good things, doctor spelled out, D O C T O R.
1: <laughs> right, dramiellc.com. Okay. And Amy, before we go, I have four quick questions I ask all my guests. Are you game for a little lightning round? Absolutely. Okay. So the first question is, how do you define success personally and or professionally?
0: Hmm. Um, a feeling that I've put forward with intention, a goal, and met that goal.
1: Hmm. Nice. I love that. That's very, very clear and concise. Second question, could you name, or if you don't want to name them, just describe one person who's inspired you in the course of your life, they could be living or dead, famous or not famous in any way, shape or form.
0: I mean, my parents, mm-hmm. they inspired me. They both overcame their own trauma and adversities. And while eventually divorcing um, and being raised by my mom, who was a single mom, um, you know, certainly she taught me resilience Um, But also just a plethora of educators that impacted my life and mentors that have impacted my life. Um, Really just this feeling of um, being okay with being a woman in psychology and mental health, having feelings Mm -hmm. and being given the permission from these mentors that I didn't have to subscribe to kind of a white male approach to teaching and learning and being a psychologist that I could really be a relational person. And that was the most important part of who I was in any relationship.
1: Beautiful. A a lot of people on the show are quick to point out family members first, and then they'll go to a mentor or some, or a colleague, but people often immediately think of a family member who inspired them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad you went for both. That's great. Mm-hmm. An ultimate question. Is there a book or a movie? It doesn't have to be an absolute favorite because many of us can't really choose one that's had an impact on the way you think or the way you live your life.
0: Mm. Oh my gosh. Oh, I'm so bad at remembering movie titles, but mm-hmm. I love reading. Um I love, there's a fiction book that I love called The Night Circus, and I can't remember the name of the author, Keith, I apologize, but it's really about magic and mystery. Um, And then, you know, I've read a lot of books by Bruce Perry that have really shaped how I think about trauma and kids and families. Um, Really, anything by him is incredible. Um, more recently, I've been reading a book called The Coddling of the American Mind that oh, just, yeah. yeah, has really got me thinking about how we think about psychological safety in our world today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The That is sort of a play on words from The Closing of the American Mind, which was by Harold Bloom, I think, it's a mm-hmm. book from a number of years ago. Yeah, yeah think you're the second person to mention that book maybe it means I should read it okay
0: I mean if I'm honest with you Keith I mean like what you'll find me reading the most often are like kind of creepy psychological thrillers
1: (laughs) good we all need our place that we go to blow off steam right that's awesome yeah yeah Yeah. you don't have to like be home reading Tolstoy you know it's okay yeah Yeah. (laughs) We all have our little pleasures. Um, okay, last question. If you were elected queen of the world, mm-hmm. what's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects? And this would mean you have ultimate power?
0: I mean, it makes me teary to mm-hmm. even think about this, but it's it's what I said before about my passion, mm-hmm. right? If every adult knew what trauma was mm-hmm. if every person behaved in a way that recognized that adversity and trauma are inherent in a in a human experience that we all have and we mm-hmm. interacted like that I think our world would feel less alone more valued and more equitable and safe and my goodness that's what I want for the world
1: Hmm. Well, I would, I would vote for you.
0: Okay. <laughs> Thanks.
1: All right. Well, Amy, thank you so much. I can't wait to be on your show. Thank you for being here. And I'm so glad we're both members of the health podcast network. And I encourage people to go to dramyllc.com and check out the most important medicine podcast. And if you're a nurse and you're interested in the provider's lounge, get some other colleagues interested and get in touch with Amy to create a provider's lounge for nurses. Cause we could really use it. it. But if you know a doctor or an optometrist or another healthcare provider who needs something like this, send them to Amy, right, Amy?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I would yeah. love it.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much. This has been wonderful.
0: Thanks Keith. You're just so great to talk to. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. Remember, head to nursekeith.com for the show notes or just look for them on the app where you happen to be listening. And please go to dramyllc.com and please check out the Most Important Medicine podcast. If you need personalized holistic career coaching to elevate your career, look no further than Nurse Keith Coaching. Get in touch with me, mention the show and get a 10% discount off your first coaching package. And if you'd like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com forward slash nursekeith. It really helps even if you want to pledge $2 a month, enough just to give me a little boost to help me produce the show and keep these episodes coming to you. We are, as I mentioned, proud members of the Health Podcast Network along with Amy and the... Best Medicine Podcast, and you can find them at healthpodcastnetwork.com. We're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting, and Mark Cappiespeason is our stalwart social media ringmaster and newsletter wrangler. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with one of my favorite quotes. This one is by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And my friend, Dr. Amy King, bidding you adieu from
0: Newburgh, Oregon.
1: Newburgh, Oregon. Thank you, Amy. Thanks to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side.